Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, America's proverbial melting pot is real. The story of who we are as Americans is one of multiple histories. But in the nation's archives, where much of that history is preserved, African Americans are not well represented. Now there is a two-pronged campaign to get more African-American families to donate personal papers and to get the nation's archives to make their collections inclusive. Later in the show, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King has long been admired for his commitment and leadership in the civil rights movement, a leadership that was distinguished by his extraordinary oratorical skills. In celebration of MLK Day, we take another listen to Reverend King's speeches and deconstruct some of his best-known rhetoric. But first, joining me in the studio, Ken V. Phillips, first curator of race and ethnicity at the Arthur and Elizabeth Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America. The research library is located at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard. Welcome, Ken V. Hi, thank you for having me. And from WBEZ Studio in Chicago, Juliana Richardson, founder and executive director of The History Makers, a nonprofit archival project documenting and preserving the personal histories of African Americans. The Harvard-trained lawyer and former TV executive has interviewed more than 3,000 people for the project. Hello, Juliana. Hello to you. Thanks for having me also. Absolutely. And from Audio Image Studios in Richmond, Virginia, actress Daphne Maxwell-Reed joins us. Ms. Reed may be best known to some for her role on the sitcom The Fresh Pence of Bel-Air, playing the aunt of an early-in-his-career rapper-actor Will Smith. She has just donated her personal papers to Northwestern University's archives. Hello, Daphne. Hello. So I'm so Thanks glad to I'm so glad yeah. to have all of you here uh, joining me for this conversation. And Kenvi, I'm going to start with you. Um, what does it mean to be the first curator for race and ethnicity at the Schlesinger Library, and why is your role so critical? Um, it's it's a really important position, and I am deeply honored to be the first um, curator at the Schlesinger to focus on diversity. Um, the archives itself is 75 years old and has. Um, for those 75 years focused on women, which women being a minority in archives and understanding in the history of, of our nation. Um, but to talk, focus on racial differences is, is critically important in terms of understanding where we've come from and where we're going and who are the major and minor um, critical actors and how we get from point to point. 
And I should mention that you have a master's in public history and a Ph.D. in, in uh, United States history. So you are well focused on understanding where people's personal stories and materials would fall um, in the spectrum of American history. Yes. Yes, I do. Um, so it's it's interesting to be able to look at archives as a practitioner, also to look at archives from a scholarly perspective to see like how scholars may be able to mine these different types of documents and things that sometimes we as individuals don't think are important or we don't realize what one can glean from photographs or receipts or certificates and things that sometimes get cast aside by family or by individuals as we get older, want to make sure that we keep those things and being able to look at the, the documents from both sides is, is critically important. So over to you, Juliana Richardson, because I really uh, began to understand um, the dearth of representation in these archives from you. Now, that's not your job. You're, you're not doing this uh, professional archiving. What you're doing is recording the personal stories of African-Americans through your project, The History Makers. But in doing so, um, y- y- it's, it's necessary for people to pull together all that documentary evidence. And that's when you realize what? Explain how bad it is. We are both an oral history project, but we're also uh, a uh, video oral history archive. So archiving was in what we did. Um, we're housed permanently at the Library of Congress with the largest attempt to record the black experience since the WPA slave narratives. But in the process... Um, And I would say probably um, about six years ago, as we were doing interviews, um, I started to ask people what they were doing with their papers. And, um, And the response was often a very sort of quizzical look back, uh, that there were no plans for their papers or they didn't even know what papers were. And that I found um, alarming, mainly because of the 3,200 people we've interviewed, I would say 99.9% had no plan for their papers. Mm. And then as we were um, taking, because our collection, as I said, is housed at the Library of Congress, as we were um, working to get our collection into the academy for use and public libraries, And there was some pushback on that, and I would start to ask archivists what they had um, in their collections. And I learned at that point that very little was and that we're at a risk right now of losing almost all of the 20th century if we don't act now. Um, I just want to pause there and and, and underscore what you just said. You said we're at a risk of losing African-Americans' presence in all of the 20th century? Yes. Yes. Wow. Um, it is, it's a crisis uh, beyond um, any kind of measure, um, especially when you think that we had the WPA slave narratives. And we have archives around. Kenvey, before she came to the Schlesinger, worked at Howard University's Moreland Spingarn Collection, which has one of the most preeminent collections in the country. Um, but a lot of these archives are hidden from view, or they're not processed, and or um, every day that someone dies now, uh, collections are being thrown away, and that's our material history. And for a video oral history archive, we need to have photos and papers and 
the other things that help tell or contextualize the story. So that's why it's so important, why I've taken upon uh, myself to try to draw attention to this. And just to be clear about how quickly all of this can go away, of the 3,200 people you've interviewed for your oral histories and for the videos and the detailed um, um, histories that you have as a part of the History Makers, how many people have died? Uh, we've had almost 700 who've passed away. So, um, so that, I mean, that would be just a, a, I mean, it's an incredible loss of the kind of people that you have in the History Makers, their, their stories um, in the, told in this way, in this kind of detailed way, uh, perhaps would not have been, to your point, accessible and or even known. That's right. That's right. All right. So let me uh, move over to you, Daphne Maxwell-Reed, actress mm -hmm. and a person who did donate to Northwestern's university's archives. And I wonder first, had you always thought about having, quote unquote, papers and knew that you would do something with the materials that you had in your life? Or how did you come to think about this is something that needed to be done? All through my life, I have had experiences where I was the first to do this or the first to do that. And I thought I'd better collect this information so I could tell my family. Okay, pause. And my let's, family. Pause, wait, pause right there because let's do, let's tell everybody what you were the first to do so they can oh. understand what, what these papers <laughs> are about. So, uh, you know, uh, first homecoming queen in 1967 at Northwestern University, first black woman on the cover of Glamour magazine. Um, these are things that are, are first that only you have right. achieved. Go ahead. And <laughs> while I was in college, they did not recognize that achievement of being the first black African-American in the Northwestern University yearbook. So I said, well, I'd better collect this stuff myself. The only way that my parents actually could gloat about me being the first African-American was because I was on the cover of the jet. And if the jet hadn't documented it, it wouldn't exist. Jet Magazine is so, a black-owned magazine for people who don't know. Go ahead. The Jet, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. And I, I knew that over time, all of the things that I were, was doing was the important story to tell my children. So I've collected memorabilia of all these things. And I have been extremely blessed uh, in my career and have had lots of television shows that people don't no exist anymore, but I have them archived. I have copies of them so that they will know that this happened uh, during this period of time. And I was not at all interested in giving them to Northwestern because I was kind of PO'd at Northwestern <laughs> for 40 years. Um, but I came around and I made sure that the stipulation that I had for them having my archives were that they would digitize them and make them available to anyone who was looking for information about me. Because a lot of times they go to a university and they keep them under wraps. And they don't have people don't have access to archives. But I needed to have a place that I also knew was going to preserve them well. And a lot of universities don't have the ability. And we really need to get more information out to people about 
what they should be looking for when they want to archive their papers because there a lot of schools will say, yeah, I'll take your papers, and they have no place to put them but in a closet somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really important to know what is going to happen with them once you give them to somebody. I was not interested in Northwestern until about uh, maybe 10 years ago when they reapproached me, apologized for how they treated me, and... Um, kind of showed me that they had the ability to do what needed to be done with the things that I valued. And I liked that they valued me and knew that there was something there that needed to be accessible for research. So Daphne Maxwell-Reed, you um, were a part of TV shows like The A-Team, WKRP, T.J. Hooker, and I mentioned Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And I say that because your history is never one thing. You are multifaceted. That's a television history, okay? That's a communication mm-hmm. history in America. That's black American history. That's women's mm-hmm. history. I mean, you're crossing so many fronts. So to have your papers somewhere where people can really put that all together and see it, it becomes critically important to telling the whole story. Correct. And there's also things like Frank's Place that there should be no copies of online. That's right. (laughs) Yes. But uh, things like that need to be archived because it was a groundbreaking show. It changed television. And that's a show that you and your husband, Tim Reed, uh, created and produced. No, Tim Reed did. I did not create that. I was just an actress. (laughs) (laughs) He and Hugh Wilson created that show, and he produced it and starred in it. And he was, it, it was just a fantastic show that got a lot of press at the time and was canceled for political reasons. Right. But the story of Frank's Place and all those wonderful actors that we had old actors from the 30s and 40s who had done wonderful things in film and television got to show their chops on Frank's Place. And it's a show that really needs to be studied. And I hope that somewhere there are archives besides the one that we have Mm -hmm. of the show. We have the original two-inch tapes of this show. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And we're discussing the effort to get African Americans to donate their personal papers and to get archives to make sure those papers are part of their collections. My guests are Ken V. Phillips of Harvard Schlesinger Library, Juliana Richardson, founder and creator of the History Makers Archive Project, and actress Daphne Maxwell-Reed, you just heard her, who just recently donated her personal papers to Northwestern University. Now, I want to circle back to you, Kenvi, because um, when we talk about a holistic history, and you are the ultimate historian, um, what does it mean to have the absence? So you're fighting to make sure this material is present and accessible, as Daphne Maxwell-Weed has said. But when there is an absence, as Juliana has said, of, you know, all of this material, how can you tell the whole story of America? I'm just asking the question, how is, how is that possible? Um, it's difficult, if not impossible. And you can see, like, what does the absence look like? It looks like our textbooks from 20, 30 years ago. It looks like, unfortunately, in ways, what our textbooks are turning into now, this idea that people are missing, stories are missing. I was at a a program uh, last week, and they were talking about the Montgomery Boys bus boycott, and there's a, a critical actor, Joanne Robinson, who nobody's heard of. We 
I'm sorry. I'm Historians sorry. have heard of her. And I've on the prize. Yes, yes, I have. I'm sorry. Eyes <laughs> on, on the prize. Thank heard you of very her. much. Yes. But for some <laughs> unknown reason, even though we all love Eyes on the Prize, but a lot of us, we've forgotten her. Um, if not, some of us have never heard of her. And that's really unfortunate. And that's kind of what it looks like. We have these spaces and things happen. And all of the work that she did, all of a sudden, it's kind of like it just appeared. It just happened. We can tell the story and there are vacancies and there are absences that we just kind of take for granted as things that just happened. But no, someone actually did that work. Someone actually put their sweat and tears into um, that movement or that that action and we kind of skip over it. And that that's what the absences look like, unfortunately. And it's really not uncommon to have those absences. Juliana, I was privileged to sit in on a, a program you put together with a number of uh, archivists and also a person who had donated her father's papers. And one thing I was struck by is that she um, put in her father's papers in a city archive, in addition to some of the personal papers having to do specifically around race and ethnicity, because without those papers that really talked about the life of her father and mother, there would be no sense of how African-Americans lived in the community. In other words, your history of the community would be all white and just normal daily activity. That just really made an impression for me about how much of that, that's not a personal history per se. It's bigger than that in many ways. Oh, everybody's history is really bigger than that in many ways. And I, that was Dr. Um, Carolyn Yancey, and she was talking about her uh, father, Dr. Asa Yancey, who was uh, very, very uh, respected in the medical field. Um, and she was very thoughtful about who she was going to give what to. Um, she also talked about how the archivists um, were also guiding her about this may not be appropriate for us, but it would be appropriate for this other collection. But um, that, that, that she did that, because most times when people are, you know, family members die, people are going in and just trying to get rid of things. And that there, once again, goes all of our history just being thrown away. And I think, you know, I, I don't know if um, um, anyone read recently about the, um, this film that was recently found of the, it was recorded in the late 1800s of an African-American, the first example of them kissing. Um, mm, and yes, how that, that mm. film was actually found is an amazing story because someone mm. just bought some things on eBay and they put it aside and then they went to look at it to show for a class and they found this very, very, very rare film. And so I, I can't speak enough about the importance of this. I also, I want to applaud Daphne Maxwell-Reed because Northwestern, also what was happening is that there were the alumni that were agitating and the library itself was not rich in history there at Northwestern. And so it was that intersection, and I was coming in at that point talking to them about the need and asking them. And the fact that Northwestern did what it's, it did and digitized everything is in a very short period of time is a testament to them. But it's also a testament to her that she said yes. 
And Kenvi over at the Schlesinger is really, we've been working together because uh, we were able to work um, Angela Davis's collection. I had encouraged that it go there to the Schlesinger. They wanted it. There are other collections we're working on, but in the process, um, Alelia Bundles and I, who first introduced me to the Schlesinger, you know, start talking about, and she's the great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker, niece, sorry. But what happened in the process is that we start asking Kim V. and the Schlesinger, have you thought about collecting your own progeny? you know, the works of your own progeny, women that came out of both Radcliffe and Harvard. And so now we are working Mm. on that project. Wow. Yeah, that would be uh, quite the collection. I I think people may be listening to this and thinking, well, first of all, I have a little bit better understanding what papers are now described by all of you, but I'm not Angela Davis. I'm not Daphne Maxwell-Reed. So, uh, you know, (laughs) <laughs> what do I have to donate? And what, what could I have to donate? When you think about people <laughs> doing their DNA tests and the records that they have to go through to find their relatives, you understand that something written down and archived somewhere is a valuable tool for whatever you need to do. I mean, just think about it in those terms. Everybody wants to know where they came from, especially now. And you don't, I don't have anything but a few things from my mother. Mm. But my children will know about my mother because I've saved a lot of her papers. It's something that you have to kind of engender in your own family. And you have to put a value on yourself and your family. And I don't think we are to the point now that we value what we do, mm-hmm. and we really need to. Or who we are, can be. Yeah, I would, I would say, I mean, if you think in terms of who's important to you, um, outside of the big name, the Angela Davises, who's important to you, your grandmother, your grandfather, your uncles, and the different things that they taught you and the way they taught you and the food that you ate and the music that you listened to. Um, if you read, I started reading Michelle Obama's Becoming, if you look at her story, a lot of her story is just about all of the people that she talks about that helps to create her so that she grows up into this to become Michelle Obama are people that nobody would have thought about if it was not for her. So maybe we think outside of who am I and what's important and as as Maxine said, who's important and value yourself, but value your ancestors and also thinking in terms of right. who your descendants will value, like who they will become and what they will do. Um, because even if you just you know, introduce your grandchild to some music and they go on to be the first to do something or the, the you know, groundbreaking research, you're a big part of that. And we have to think in terms of lineage and not just right now. Um, that's one of the things that we do have to think of in, as practitioners is not just what happened 100 years ago, but what will we be talking about 100 years from now? And we have the opportunity to shape that conversation. We have the opportunity to change not just what's in textbooks, but what's in water cooler conversations. If we think about what you talk about at the grocery store and the types of foods you eat, it came from somewhere. And so we have to think about what we're doing as a people and the immediate who am I and what am I. It's also, it's really just bigger than us. Mm. And so you're an important part of a larger story. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. We're talking about the absence of African-American personal papers in the nation's archives. My guests are Schlesinger Library archivist Kenvy Phillips, Juliana Richardson, founder and creator of the archival project The History Makers, and actress Daphne Maxwell-Reed, who recently donated her papers. Now, we've made sort of tangential reference to what papers are. From Juliana and from you, Kenvi, and from you, Daphne. Daphne, you've told us a little bit more explicitly. But from Kenvi and Juliana, let me start there. I'd like to know, what are the kinds of um, memorabilia or, or pieces uh, that really tell a story? So as someone's listening to this and thinking, let me go back and think about what my, my grandmother or my mother or my cousin or my aunt may have or what I may have, following what you just said, Kenvi, mm-hmm. about that speaks to right now. How do you begin to think about it? I'll start with you, Kenvi. So we tell people, we give people lists of things like journals and diaries and calendars, correspondence, which can come in the terms of letters or greeting cards or email. As we do more and more things digitally now, we have more and more things that are born digital. Photographs, audio recordings, video recordings, flyers, and even those um, digital flyers and invitations, those types of things, the things that let us know where you were, what you did, who was there with you. And if if you can give us an idea of what you were thinking or how you were feeling, those types of things are critically important. If you're part of an organization, um, minutes from meetings and posters and placards and all types of advertisements for those types of things. Sometimes things like buttons and pins Mm. and um, hats and T-shirts, those types of things are also evidence of where you were and, and who you were with. Juliana. So I agree completely with that list, and I think it's really you know, important. I also tell people that they don't have to necessarily organize things because if the archivist came in after they were dead, there would be no organizing on their part. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more important that they make the commitment and they think about what is important to them. Daphne pointed one very important thing right now is for those repositories who can digitize, that's extremely important. But you also want to feel good about the place that you're putting things. So you may want to talk to several places to see who makes you feel better, who could commit to the things that are important to you. Maybe you want to get something back uh, from the archive to use at some point, or you would like to have a copy. So those are the things that are important when you're talking to them, but you have to go by your gut instinct, but you cannot wait too long. I really believe that people should plan for their legacy the way mm. they plan for a will. And wow. if we don't do that, then we are we're continue to be in trouble. And the other thing I want to add to this and why this is so incredibly important is that what is being debated in society is who has value and who has who doesn't. And who, how do you show you have value if you do not take the step to preserve anything that you created? We're not asking you to go out and create something. We're just asking you to hand over and save what you have spent a lifetime making happen. That's it. Mm. Kenby, you want to add? I wanted to say, and and thank you, Juliana. As she said earlier, Juliana and Alilia Bundles have been great friends of the Schlesinger Library. But the point that she made about um, organization is really important, not just because 
if you once you pass, you're not there to, to recreate it, is that when archivists are going through and they're organizing your papers so that researchers can use it, they want to know how you used it. And so mm-hmm. if you go in and rearrange it in order to give it over, you've actually upset the way that you used it. And so it, it may be helpful for people to know how you thought and how you were working with these items as you were working with them, as opposed to something that w- that you made up after the fact in order to give give it over to someone else. Um, so it it shouldn't be work for you. Um, the The institution that you give your papers to should actually help you with these things. And and most will um, in terms of not putting a burden on you in terms of organizing or reorganizing or trying to make it simple. As um, Maxine said, they came and picked up her papers. And that's right. something that, you know, is important. Yeah. Um, I think also that it's important to know that you, you can begin to have a conversation with an archive uh, mm-hmm. about what you have so that you can get some help before you actually give it over. You know what I mean? You don't have to wait until say, well, now I have eight boxes. I guess I should call somebody. Um, You can, in the process, say, I wonder if this, you know, this period of time, which I have um, some documentary evidence of, is helpful or speaks to a certain history that is perhaps not represented or is represented, but not enough. For example, I know that the Schlesinger got uh, uh, Myraline Morris Whitaker's papers of a project that she did called Sister Soldier. This was just a project that she started herself, um, and it expanded for five years of sending hair care products to black women serving in the military in Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq. And it became a thing, and she had all these fabulous letters back from the women serving, which not only said their thanks, but actually talked about, you know, how they were living their lives in the moment. That's incredible. And none of these people were Angela Davis, they were just doing their jobs as people who, you know, were part of the military. So you can be Angela Davis and you can be Daphne Maxwell Reed and you can be a soldier uh, serving in in Iraq. Yeah, and that that project is really interesting because if you think in terms of oh her philanthropy or her her caregiving, or we think in terms of military, but also you can look at that in terms of the image of of black women and how we present ourselves and what's acceptable and what's not, and how the military allows us to present ourselves. I mean, there's so many different ways that scholars can use those papers to understand the life of of black women. It would help if we knew um, where to access. Uh, information about where to put these things. I have yes. a whole collection of photographs that my father took when he was photographing in World War II in the wow. Army. Oh, I, so I have the wow. perfect place for this. you. Wow. <laughs> Kenvi is getting all <laughs> salivating over here, so no, I think I have you might want to start talking to her. <laughs> okay, well, Kenvi, you me can a call, fight, but I will. <laughs> Speaking on the military, the U.S. Army, um, the Army Heritage Center, um, when I was talking to them because they wanted to have the papers of Togo West, those papers ended up going to Howard, his uh, where he went to um, university. But in in the process, when I was asking them um, how many African-Americans they had in their collection, they only had one, and that was Benjamin O. Davis Sr., yet they have $25 uh, for digitization. And and to have one in the U.S. Army, that shows why we are not represented 
the black experience in military museums across the United States. So there are, I think, you know, uh, people like um, myself and Kenvi were starting to put lists together. I've been circulating lists, and we as an organization, the History Makers, are really trying to do surveys of different collections to see what actually people have and where there's intersectionality. Because this is going to take a village to, to, to help and change. All right, last word, Daphne Maxwell-Reed. I hope that um, I can find a place that will satisfy Mr. Tim Reed, who has an incredible <laughs> archival collection of work of his life. Um, and I hope that I can make sure that there's information that can get out to the general public on the importance of archiving this stuff. All right. Last word, Kenvi. Thank you again for having this conversation. I hope that everyone does take another look at the value and the importance that they have in our society, both in their local communities and nationwide. Um, and I am available if someone <laughs> wants to talk about their collections and, and where they can put them and, and, and how to care for them. Thank you all for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Ken V. Phillips is the first curator of race and ethnicity at the Arthur and Elizabeth Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America. Juliana Richardson is the founder and executive director of The History Makers, a nonprofit archival project documenting and preserving the personal histories of African Americans. And actress Daphne Maxwell Reed recently donated her personal papers to Northwestern University. Coming up, you may not know the details of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, but it's likely you are familiar with his words and famous speeches. Reverend King was a talented orator, so good that some of his speeches are now considered to be among the best ever. What exactly makes his speeches memorable, moving, and resonant? We go line by line with rhetoric experts. Next, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. This is the part of the show we call Lanyap for something extra. I have a dream, drum major for justice, memorable words from two of the iconic speeches of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Dr. King's speeches are generally included in best speech collections. Tomorrow's nationwide annual celebration honoring his legacy will highlight the dazzling oratory and compelling rhetoric which make them outstanding. Here to help me dissect his words is someone who makes her living studying words. From the studios of WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, Carolyn Calloway-Thomas, Chair of African American and African Diaspora Studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. Her research includes communication in Black America, intercultural communication, and civic engagement. Hello, Carolyn. Hello. I'm so glad to have you to have this discussion because I think um, every year when we uh, honor Dr. King, we sort of just take for granted the beautifulness of his rhetoric and, uh, you know, how rich it is. But we don't really take the time to sort of dissect it, I think, in a way that you have done and that I'd like to do now. So first of all, what makes a great speech and why are most of Dr. King's speeches considered to be quite good? Well, I think Dr. King's speeches are considered to be exceptionally good, primarily because he was able to touch so beautifully the 
conscious of America and the world. He used inspirational and aspirational speeches. And in that sense, he touched the wellsprings of human emotions. He moved people toward that which is good. He was a person who helped redefine what America is. He helped the country reorder black and white reality. But typically, outstanding, transcendent oratory is a kind of oratory that is powerful enough, significant enough to move across time and space. It's a rhetoric for the ages, and I think that you know, hundreds of years from now, we'll still be listening to Dr. King's rhetoric because his voice, that baritone sonorous voice, was a voice for the ages. Well, I think that uh, one of his speeches considered, you know, best ever is, of course, the I Have a Dream speech, which was delivered during the March on Washington for Jobs and Justice on August 28, 1963. First, let's take a listen to it, and then um, let's regroup and you tell me why this one particularly resonates still. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Now, of course, the speech was much longer than that, uh, but it, it, it just remains on every list that you can think of, of of best speeches. He used that I have a dream phraseology throughout the, the speech on the steps of the, of the Lincoln Memorial. Um, why is it still resonant today? It is still resonant today for a number of reasons, one of which is that we teach it in high school and college and universities. That's one reason why it still resonates. But I think it resonates primarily because in that speech, as in all of the speeches for the most part and sermons that Dr. King gave, he talked about the beloved community. And that's a universal. He took those Christian virtues such as empathy, justice, generosity, and fair play. And he pitted those Christian virtues alongside the creedal, foundational principles of justice and freedom and democracy. And I think one of the reasons why his speeches, and especially that one, still resonates is because he was able to make Americans, especially white Americans, know and realize that they had done a dreadful thing to African Americans because they had talked one way and lived another way. They have those beautiful, glorious creeds. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and yet they did not apply to the black citizens in the United States of America. So King is able in the I Have a Dream speech to use light and dark metaphors, the water metaphors, as a way of framing the injustice that existed in America with regard to the treatment of African-American citizens. For example, and I love the beginning of that speech because I think it's a really dramatic and compelling example of what words can do and how King could move people toward the good. And one has to imagine that King is giving this speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial, overlooking the reflecting pool across from the Washington Monument. And so there is King standing gloriously in front of the Lincoln Memorial. 
And he begins that speech as a symbolic reminder of how black people were still being treated. He said, for example, 100 years ago, a great emancipator in whose symbolic shadow we stand issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And then King said, 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. And then he went to his water archetypal metaphor. He said, the Negro is, finds himself in the midst of an island of poverty in the midst of an ocean of material prosperity. So that pitting of what it was like to be an African-American against what it was like to be a white American was just dramatic and compelling. He reminded white Americans that they needed to, as he would say later in that speech, live out the true meaning of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I think that speech is also significant because King was able to say that that document, especially the Declaration of Independence, that left African Americans out of it, that left women out of it, was spacious enough to subsume the beauty and elegance of African American people. So that point of view also makes the speech compelling and moving. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And my guest today is Carolyn Calloway-Thomas, a professor at Indiana University in Bloomington. We're talking uh, about Dr. King's speeches and looking at a close examination of the speeches that everyone considers powerful still today. Now, you mentioned a number of factors in the I Have a Dream speech, which seems to be common across a lot of the speeches that he gave. He will quote from a number of, of intellectual places, if you will. Um, so in the I Have a Dream speech, it was the Declaration of Independence, the Emancipation Proclamation. As you pointed out, he even mentioned uh, the song, America, My Country Tis of Thee. He then went to the Bible, books of Exodus, Isaiah, Amos. Um, and then he did what he often does, which is the use of repetition to sort of drive his point home. So anybody who's heard that speech knows that he said, I have a dream several times uh, throughout the speech. Why is uh, uh, the manner in which he delivers the speech, his particular style, um, does that is that in service of the content? Because you've talked very a lot about the content and how powerful that was. Um, could somebody else have made the speech using the words, but and had the same kind of impact if they weren't absolutely as not, absolutely okay. not? Because I think his sonorous baritone voice with his lyrical qualities also make the speech powerful and edifying. Uh, for example, sometimes I, when I assign the speech, I ask my students to read it. And when they read it, it does not have the electrifying effect upon them when they listen to the speech. Because those cadences, those cadences that Dr. King uses are right out of the Baptist sermonic tradition. I grew up in a small town in Bernice, Louisiana, so I'm quite accustomed to the the rhythms and the cadences of the kind of speech making that Dr. King gave. So that speech would not live as well if it were not for the spoken aspects of it, because one can actually feel what it was like for one to have been an African-American citizen in the United States in 1963. 
Well, let's so, take a listen to uh, another one of his speeches. This is from Our God is Marching On. This is uh, at the conclusion of the the march from Selma uh, to Montgomery. Um, and this is his address uh, to the people who are standing there, 25,000 of them, March 25th, 1965. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. How long? Not long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So, Carolyn uh, Calloway-Thomas, professor at Indiana University in Bloomington, the repetition um, and the metaphor were just uh, common signatures of his speeches, but the repetition particularly. I, I read that um, one of the reasons that he um, did that a lot was that it, it sort of came from old-time Baptist ministers and way back in enslaved times where uh, the enslaved could not read and were forbidden to read, and so people had to say it to them, and that was it. You couldn't go back and look it up again. And this sort of traveled down, and he always used this as a methodology to reach people who perhaps were not as educated as he. Not only that, but repetition is just an effective rhetorical device. Because when one repeats an idea over and over and over, it lingers. Repetition is persuasive. Repetition can act like a fact. Repetition can urge people on toward marvelous things. And so Dr. King, not only in the fashion of the African-American tradition of Samanic preaching, but he also realized the resonance that repetition has for individuals. And it's also instructive Think of how many people remember the refrain, I have a dream. People mm. remember that refrain primarily because it is, it is repetitive. And so Dr. King not only uses repetition in that Selma speech, but he also uses call response. And I think we probably noticed that when Dr. King said, how long? And the audience said, not long. How mm -hmm. long? Not long. And so that antiphonal pattern, that give and take on the part of African-American speakers and listeners, that is what makes African-American oratory powerful in the pulpit. And all good, persuasive, decent Baptist preachers will use repetition. Okay. Um, now, the, it's fair to say that the first part of his civil rights trajectory was one in which, you know, people were beginning to embrace him outside of of the circle of civil rights organizers. But the rest of white America was coming to be supportive. The high point, of course, was the I Have a Dream speech in March on Washington. And then later in his life, when he became very uh, uncomfortable with the war in Vietnam and turned, um, he made a very important speech that often people do not know about. It's interesting that I Have a Dream is fixed uh, as a kind of way of symbolizing who he was. But his Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence is not all the time considered in the same way. So let's take a listen to that. This is from his speech, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence, which was delivered at the Riverside Church in New York City on April 4th, 1967. It's exactly one year before he died. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. 
when machines and consumers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. Now, Professor Thomas, what, Callie Thomas, what is he doing here using his oratorial skills? He's turning uh, from what people expected him to say to something that was uh, considered quite radical at the moment. It was radical. Uh, Dr. King, in his uh, Time to Break Silence speech, Q jumps over his specialization, what was perceived to have been his specialization. He was supposed to specialize in civil rights. And so Dr. King's conscience just bruised and battered him. Uh, For two years, Dr. King thought about the evils of the Vietnam War, and he had a war within himself because his conscience said, you must speak out. But then at the same time, he thought about what would his speaking out do to the civil rights movement. And so he weighed and considered that responsibility hugely. Do you think that's the reason why that this speech is not as well known or little known, actually, in some circles? It's little known, and I think it's just that. First of all, we don't teach as many speeches today as we taught once upon a time. Um, That's the first reason. I think second is that I Have a Dream speech is so commanding. It's so powerful. Mm. It's so dramatic and compelling, and it speaks so much to who we are or should be (laughs) such Mm -hmm. that uh, people find it very, very persuasive. And, and, all, and uplifting. And uplifting. You know, the possibilities. Yes. Absolutely. And that speech has hope. And that's mm-hmm. a hallmark of assimilationist rhetoric. And Dr. King practiced the art and craft of assimilationist rhetoric beautifully. I mean, when one thinks of Frederick Douglass's Fourth of July oration that he gave in 1852 in Rochester, New York, that speech is an indictment of the 4th of July. It's an indictment of slavery. And just as Frederick Douglass indicted America in 1852, so too did King indict America in that Time to Break Silence speech. And King had a reason to be concerned. He had a reason to tremble at the possibility of giving that speech because he realized that the civil rights movement relied very heavily upon the Johnson administration for some of those Hmm. key civil rights bills that were passed. It was a partnership of a sort, uh, and he was about to break that partnership uh, because this was weighing on his conscience. Yes. Now, I have something else I want to talk to you about with regard to um, his style and how uh, he presented his speeches. Uh, In the movie, Selma, I don't know if you saw it, but it was directed by Ava DuVernay. This is not to be confused with the Eyes on the Prize documentary series, of Mm -hmm. which I was a part. This is the fictional um, based on history movie, big Hollywood movie directed by Ava DuVernay. Um, she had a point where she could not get rights to his actual speech in Selma. So she actually wrote one. She made it up. And I want you to listen to this and ask you if you think it follows in line with how he would deliver a speech. Here it is. As long as I am unable to exercise my constitutional right to vote, I do not have command of my own life. I cannot determine my own destiny, for it is determined for me by people who would rather see me suffer than succeed. 
Um, so that was written by the director, Ava DuVernay. The uh, writer on the pr- uh, project is Paul Webb. Um, does it have s- capture some of, you know, the kind of vibe that uh, Dr. King has when he delivers a speech, do you think? Uh, somewhat. <laughs> I will... <laughs> I say that. Did you know it was made up? Did you know that speech was made up? Well, it doesn't have the cadences that Dr. King's speeches have. It was a Mm -hmm. bit too fast. The rhythms were a bit off key. If one compares that segment from speeches that Dr. King actually gave. So I think most people who know King's work and have heard his voice would instantly say, well, not there yet. Mm. But just give you a little flavor of it. Um, One of the things that he was the master of, and this, of course, comes from writing. I mean, you could perhaps do the cadence that he has, um, perhaps do some of the references that he has and that are present in most of his speeches. But as you started off in this discussion saying the content was so rich and he um, gave it to us in these beautiful metaphors that we could you know, see and imagine, and it made it uh, even clearer for all of us. Um, I want to take a listen to, this is the end of his speech from I've Been to the Mountaintop. It's the speech that's considered uh, his, um, one of his great ones. It was the very last one that he delivered the night before he was assassinated. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. That was delivered at Mason Temple um, literally one day before his assassination on April 3rd, 1968. Um, He said a lot in that speech, Carolyn Calloway Thomas, and used all of the the kind of references uh, that make him that make these speeches so special. Yes, and I hope people notice that he lingered on words, and so those cadences, the crescendo, voice goes up, and he doesn't let the word end quickly. He holds it steady, and because he holds it steady, the audience is able to process what he is saying in a fantastical manner. So that's why I said that the segment from Selma was not quite there yet because Mm. the person did not capture the fact that Dr. King's cadences suggest a kind of lingering, a kind of staying power so that people will be able to process the message that he is trying to get across. What's your favorite MLK speech? I love, I have a dream. And I also love the death of evil upon the seashore. I love those And I've never heard of that, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Can you talk, tell me a little bit about that? Well, the death of evil upon the seashore goes to the story of Exodus in the Old Testament. And it was given in 1956. And about one year after the Birmingham movement, the Birmingham, the Montgomery boycott, I should say. And what That's he is the one that most to, people would know as Rosa Parks movement. So just yes, to be clear. Yes, yes absolutely. Mm-hmm. So he wanted 
to move African-Americans, to get them, uh, to give them resilience so that they would have enough power and enough courage to go on and do the work of freedom. And so in that speech, the death of evil on the seashore, he goes to the children of Israel who were working against the Egyptians, the pharaohs. And he uses that story to say, just as there was death on the seashore, when God parted the Red Sea, so too will this happen to you. If you just keep your resilience up, if you just keep moving, if you don't give up, this is what can happen to you. God will deliver you. So I love the idea that Dr. King in that speech talks about the fact that there is good and evil in the universe. And I love the fact that Dr. King says, but love is the ultimate force. I love the fact that Dr. King talks about love is going to have the last word. He doesn't say it all the time in those those ways, but that's what is so moving for me about that speech. The Old Testament story of children in bondage and how you have to fight mightily to secure your freedom. And what happens if one does not fight mightily to secure one's freedom? It does not come. In order to have freedom, one has to fight for it. And that's why that speech is so compelling for me. It's because Dr. King used that story of Exodus to say to African-American people, you must fight for your freedom. Is there anybody now that you think comes close to bringing together the full complement of his talents as an orator, as a speaker? You know, someone who can get to the head and the heart in a powerful way using not necessarily a Baptist preacher cadence, but whatever cadence they use. Is there anyone that you can can turn to? I would probably turn to Barack Obama, former President Obama, because his speech making also has some rhythms and cadences that parallel the rhythms and cadences of Dr. King. But he does not quite come up to the standards of Dr. King. So I cannot think of anyone today whose voices would match the voice of Dr. King. So as we're studying him and honoring him every year, go back to those speeches and read them again. I think that's the lesson you're telling us, right? (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Carolyn Calloway-Thomas is the chair of African-American and African Diaspora Studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and John Parker. Francisca Monahan and Molly Boygon produced this show. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.